Historian Robert Kagan has been writing about foreign affairs for most of his 64 years. The first book in his planned trilogy on the American foreign policy was published in 2006 and focused on U.S. history before the founding up to the Spanish-American War. Kagan, a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, has just completed the second book in the trilogy titled The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941. Robert Kagan, in conclusion, writes, Americans have complex attitudes toward power and morality. They have a sense of distinctiveness and remoteness in a tumultuous and highly contested political system. Bob Kagan, what impact did Abraham Lincoln's assassination, Garfield's assassination, and McKinley's assassination have on this country when you started writing about 1900? What was the residual after those three assassinations of presidents? Well, that's a really interesting question. I don't know what to say about the Garfield assassination. I know that that had something to do with uh, arguments over uh, government reform and and patronage and things like that. In Lincoln's case, obviously the United States was still suffering from the fact that Lincoln was not able to carry out the kind of reconstruction efforts that I think he wanted to do vis-a-vis the South. And so the South basically broke out of reconstruction and went back to Jim Crow and other things. I think if Lincoln had been allowed to finish his second term, things might have been very different. So we were dealing at the end of the 19th century with an America that was you know, it was a big issue in the world, for instance, that there were so many lynchings in America. I remember Theodore, Theodore Roosevelt had to respond to a lot of, when he was president, a lot of criticism about all the lynching. And he had um, uh, Grover Washington come to the uh, to the White House. And uh, it's not Grover Washington. Who am I talking about? Uh, Grover Washington is a saxophone player. Uh, anyway, he, he, Booker T. Washington. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Why am I all my Washington is confused up? Anyway, so that was a big issue. The assassination of McKinley uh, is obviously, from the purposes of this book, uh, extremely important because he was the person who basically led the United States into the intervention in Cuba, which then led to the sort of accidental acquisition of the Philippines, which he presided over. And he presided over it uh, very successfully. I mean, he was extremely popular. His reelection. Uh, showed that the country felt that he was leading the country well. And then his assassination left people uh, worried about who his vice president was. Um, You know, Roosevelt was thought to be a bit of a loose cannon, um, and uh, people wondered. And then, as it turns out, he, he conducted a very stable... And including on foreign policy, a very sort of stabilizing and calm foreign policy and fooled people. But the, the, the loss of McKinley at that moment was potentially a big, a big issue, which I think Roosevelt handled very well. I probably didn't ask the question very well, because what I was really, that, that was important what you were just saying, but what I was really looking for is what you thought the impact was on the psyche of the United States that we were having presidents killed. And then it went on, of course, to JFK. Right. I mean, I don't know how much... Uh, the McKinley assassination was 
uh, was uh, particularly upsetting because it was for Americans, for a certain kind of American at least, because it was carried out by someone whose name they could not possibly pronounce, and I, I don't even not sure I know. But it was a southeastern European, uh, and it was an anarchist, uh, and there was a great deal. Of, anarchists at that time were killing off uh, numerous world leaders, not just in the United States, but also in Europe, and so there was a big panic about that at the time. But I, I'd have to say, uh, Americans seem to recover pretty quickly from these events, and I don't think the the for, for instance the McKinley assassination lingered as a major factor in American American behavior after that. I saw somewhere, and I don't know where, that they called your book revisionist history. First of all, is it revisionist history, and what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know who called it revisionist history. <laughs> I think uh, there are there are elements of this of this book which which run contrary to what I think most people think, and that, that may start, for instance, with the Spanish American War. Most uh, most historians treat that as the as of the opening of American imperialism, and I don't think that imperial motives were actually involved in in the decision to intervene in Cuba. I think those were those were humanitarian um, issues. Um, and and so, uh, but I, uh, yeah. How long was that Spanish-American War in 1898? 1898, it basically, well, the, the Spanish, the, the Cuban part of the Spanish-American War lasts only a few months. I mean, it basically is over within a few months. That's why, you know, John Hay famously called it a splendid little war. By the way, he didn't mean it was splendid because it was great to have war. It was how quickly it went and how painlessly, relatively speaking. Um, then, the, but then the uh, the unexpected conflict in the Philippines lasts until 1902. Um, that so there's basically four years of fighting in the Philippines, uh, in which Americans lost roughly 4,000 soldiers, which is equivalent to what we lost in Iraq over 10 years. So if you think about it, it was a much more telescoped uh, conflict and very controversial at the time. This is the second book in a trilogy, supposedly. Right. When did you decide to do a trilogy, and what is the scope of it? Well, this is this is the thing that happened to me in, in general. I, uh, I initially thought I would write a one-volume history of American foreign policy. It soon became clear to me that I couldn't say everything I thought needed to be said in one volume, so I was going to write two volumes. Uh, and ultimately, I actually think it needs four volumes, um, but I'm not sure I'm going to live long enough to write four. So I have three at least in mind. And the third volume will be uh, from the outbreak of World War II to some time after the end of the Cold War, the 90s, or something like that. What did the first volume cover? The first volume covered basically from 1607 <clears throat> to 1898, so the first the first two centuries where, you know, American foreign policy is not quite... I could do it in that amount of space because American foreign policy is not quite as active as it, as it then becomes at the turn of the century. As you know, that first book was 2006. You've even written other books since then. How do you operate? How do you work? You know, how do you set it up that you can keep track of all this history? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I this book, the, the one we're talking about now, The Ghost at the Feast, I, I lie and say it took me 12 years. I think it probably took me 15 years. And it's partly because I am I take time out occasionally to write another short book, as you say. Um, but partly I I really feel like I, I don't just go back and write what I think I already know. I, I really go through a very extensive research process and allow myself to be 
disabused of things that I thought were true and to then discover new things. And so, um, and that may be why it's revisionist uh, in, in what people call it revisionist, because I do think I've, I have a different take on what we were talking about, the Spanish-American War. I have a different take on the 19, American policy in the 1920s than I think most historians. But basically, I try to just submerge myself in that period and try to think Try to see the world from their point of view, and that's the thing I think that is most important in history. We tend to, we judge history backwards, but we live it forwards. And I want to try to give the impression in the history of what it's like to live it forward. On page 220, this jumped out at me. Indeed, it is the contention of this book that the United States had it within its power to preserve the peace in Europe after 1919 and at manageable cost, but for reasons having little to do with capacity, Washington policymakers would not take the steps necessary. Yeah, I think and that may be one of the more revisionist aspects of this book, but I think that is, if, if there, that's one of the two major points I would like people to come away with, which is that there was an opportunity to have a relatively peaceful liberal world of the kind that we have now at much less with much less effort by the United States because in 1919 the United States was even more powerful relative to the rest of the world than it was after World War II people people tend to think that World War II is when the United States became the superpower but at the end of World War 1 the United States had the largest economy larger than all all the rest of the major economies put together the United States did not not only did not suffer from World War 1 except for the the loss of about 100,000 soldiers which was a major but not compared to what happened in Europe where people lost tens of millions uh, but also the United States profited immensely from the war so the United States emerged from the war with all the money in the world, effectively, and everybody owed the United States money. In addition to which, the United States, from a standing start, we had probably about 20,000 troops at the beginning. When World War I broke out, we wound up putting 4 million men under arms, which completely shifted the balance of power uh, in Europe. So uh, the United States had the capacity at that time, opponents of the liberal world that we favor were on their backs. The Russians were involved in the Bolshevik Revolution and civil war. They were completely out of Europe, defeated by Germany. The Germans then were flat on their back, obviously, without even a military. Um, Japan at that time was very accommodating to the American, the new American order in that early period, believe it or not. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then so who were the powerful countries? Democratic Britain, Democratic France, all both of whom wanted the United States to stay involved. So it was a very accommodating period, actually, for the United States to do what it ultimately did after World War II, at much greater cost, with much more troop, many more troops deployed overseas, etc. I was watching you <clears throat> address another audience, and it was interesting when you told them, I'm about to tell you something that you don't know or maybe somebody in this audience might know and this was not this was an intellectual group yeah. and you started telling them about the Ruhr Valley R U H R incident in the 1923 I believe it right. was right. in Germany and most of them I you know I don't know what they said to you afterwards but what is that story and why don't people know about it yeah it's one of the you know uh, I, I I was when I was reading uh, other accounts of this period Dean Acheson writing in the 1930s 
looks back at the French invasion of the Ruhr district of Germany in 1923 as a turning point in the in the in the history and which led to the radicalism of Germany, the rise of Hitler, the hyperinflation that we always uh, talk about in Germany. Uh, how did it happen? Well, under Versailles, Germany was supposed to be uh, shipping regular reparations, whether in the form of money or in kind. And the Germans were always highly reluctant to do it. They they didn't think they had enough to give it. But in any case, you can imagine the German public didn't like taking whatever money they had and giving it to foreign governments, even if it was reparations for a war that they themselves don't feel that they were responsible for. So getting the Germans to pay was difficult. And under Versailles, there were punitive measures that France could carry out. And because the United States absented itself from the Versailles Treaty, which would have given it the authority to prevent the French from doing this, the French had nobody standing in their way. And so the French invade the Ruhr in order to take over coal mines and steel factories in order to get the production that the Germans owed them for reparations. But the consequence of that, as one can imagine, is that uh, the Germans were sent into a kind of radical fury over this invasion and really never recovered from it. Hitler's, the, the Nazi party numbers in this period jump dramatically. And to some extent, it, France, uh, Germany never recovers uh, from that. And that was something the Americans could have prevented. The French, the Germans, and the British were all begging the United States to get involved and to help arrive at a solution to this. But the antipathy to involvement in Europe after World War I was so great that the, uh, the Harding administration told diplomats not to attend international meetings. Um, and so the United States really did stand by, and this, this catastrophe that is, that, as you say, that no one remembers uh, occurred. And, I, and I, that's, a kind of, that's the part of this history that I'd like to recapture. Because one of my, my one core thesis, which I think it goes beyond this book in general, is that by the time you get to the 1930s, <clears throat> The disaster has already occurred. It's it's too late then. The real mistakes that that led to the 1930s were made in the 1920s, and it's always during it's often during periods of seeming calm that the mistakes are made, which then lead to the breakdown of order later on. Go back to that incident, and how, how long did it last? The Belgians were involved in it. How many were people killed during that day when the French? Yeah, there were there was some there was some resistance by the German workers who didn't want to be working at the point of a gun of a French gun and giving whatever they were producing to France, and so there was some there was some killing in that respect. But there was also real oppression. Reinhold Niebuhr, who was the great uh, philosopher of the time, he was a young man. He was an American, but he was of German ancestry, and his parents were born in Germany, and he went to visit. Uh, their their home and 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 found just utter devastation. I don't think we you know people quite realize the degree to which that Ruhr intervention really caused enormous suffering among the German people. And so uh, one of the things that happened was the Germans, uh, in order to they had to pay the workers not to work because they were resisting this French occupation. In order to pay them, they just printed more currency. And that produced the hyperinflation where people were walking around with barrels of money in order to pay the grocer. Um, How much uh, did Germany owe to the rest of the world? Uh, well, 
the the reparations payment were set at they were going to have to pay uh, a, a few uh, hundred million dollars a year until 1988. That that was the terms because the debts that the French and the British owed the United States were also going to be paid off by 1988. And so the French took the position that they were not going to pay one dollar more to the Americans than they could get from the Germans. And so uh, so the more you more the French needed to be paying back, the more you were gouging the Germans uh, of whatever money they were able to make. And that 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 just proved to be a disaster. And by the way, American officials knew it was a mistake to insist that the Europeans pay back all their war debts. That's another interesting question. You know, when the when the Europeans, when the United States first at the beginning of World War One, at, at, when the United States entered the war, and the Congress, the first thing they did was loan billions of dollars to the to the French and British congressmen at the time felt we don't even care if we get paid back because what we're basically doing is sending dollars not American soldiers to fight this war. But of course, when the war was over, that was forgotten. And then they said, well, where's our money? And President Coolidge famously said, well, they hired the money, didn't they? So they need to pay it back, which was very short-sighted on our part. Here's a quote, uh, Woodrow Wilson running for his second term. This was in 1916, right before the election. It is a war with which we have nothing to do, whose causes cannot touch us, and of course, as you write in your book, his slogan that year was "He kept us out of war." So this isn't the first time or the last time the presidents told us they weren't going to war. What's your reaction to what he was doing then? Well, he was de- he was quite sincerely trying to keep Americans out of the war. He was not pulling the wool over their eyes. He he desperately wanted to keep the United States out of the war, um, even though uh, he was worried about Germany, but he felt that the American people did not want to go to war. And that was that was the that was what opinion showed. Um, and so it's only after the Germans renew uh, all out submarine warfare against all shipping in the Atlantic and then begin sinking American flagged ships that and then also there is this the wonderful Zimmerman telegram which comes out in February of 1917 uh, in which the German foreign ministry is talking to Mexican uh, uh, officials about taking back Texas and part of South uh, Southwest America and this got Americans riled up too to the point where everybody decided that Germany was just incorrigible and that there was no choice but to go to war but it is interesting that almost not much more than five months after declaring that, you know, we're not going to get into the war, he goes to Congress, calls for getting into the war to enormous support. And that, that that's, a you know, the fickleness of American public opinion, I think, is something that we're all aware of. Um, and in foreign policy, I think it's understandable. And I'll just let me end on this point, which is he said when he said that nothing there can touch us. Um, he was not wrong. And this is one of the great sort of paradoxes and conundrums of American foreign policy, which is Americans have been, at least since the beginning of the 20th century, essentially invulnerable to foreign invasion. Obviously, uh, you can launch a terrorist attack or you can bomb Pearl Harbor, but to invade and really defeat the United States is impossible. So whenever Americans do get involved in the world, they have to say, why are we doing this? We don't, we're not doing it. Sometimes they convince themselves that they're doing it out of necessity, but it's never really out of 
that kind of necessity. It's always being influenced by other factors in in our way of thinking. Usually, and in the case of World War One and World War Two. Uh, the desire not to see liberalism defeated by militaristic authoritarianism overseas. This question really pertains to whether or not, you know, the view of government in this country is rather low, as it is about the media. <clears throat> but I, th- th- here's some other quotes that I've always wanted to ask a historian like you about. Uh, the first one is FDR, and uh, you write up and to the start of the Second World War. But here's what he said on October the 30th, again, right before the election. And this would have been his, what, I guess his third term. No, it's to be, yeah. 40, yeah. Yeah, 40, 40, yeah. He said, and while I'm talking to you mothers and fathers, I give you one more assurance. I have said this before, and I'll say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. He had to know in October of 1940 that that could possibly not be true. I think he knew that that could possibly not be true. And I I had to, you know, getting inside Franklin Roosevelt's head is one of the great challenges of all time because of course he told different things to different people he kept his cards very close to his vest and i don't think anybody other than him maybe his wife knew what he what he was really thinking i come away believing after the doing the research that he himself hoped it would not be necessary to send american troops overseas literally send troops overseas i think he thought america could could fulfill its it what was required of it through the use of its naval power and through the use of being the and by being the arsenal of of democracy by producing enough weapons for the others to do the fighting i think that he did not until very late think that uh he was going to have to actually send forces back across the atlantic i think it was george marshall who said to him among others probably that you're not going to be able to do this without sending american forces but i think probably when he gave that speech he thought that was true got to give you one more of these um i love them this is lbj <clears throat> i know this beyond the scope of this book it probably will be in your next but this is in the fall of 1964 right before his election to his first and only full term we are not about to send american boys nine or ten thousand miles away uh from home to do what Asian boys ought to be doing for themselves. We don't want to get tied down to a land war in Asia, 550,000 troops later. Yeah. What, 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 I mean, again, right before the election, right. what's going on here? Well, as you say, I, I, I haven't studied the Vietnam War with the kind of uh, care that I've studied the, what I've just been writing about, so I'm a little bit reluctant to, to make a judgment, honestly, based on that. But what I would say is... It goes a little bit goes back to what I was saying before. Because the United States does not respond to things overseas because it's immediately threatened with the attack. Naturally, I think Americans would always like to do as little as possible to accomplish their objectives. So if the objective is fundamentally to protect the liberal democratic world from attack or being pushed around by various types of autocracies, in this case communism, which was obviously uh, the number one concern of Americans at the time, uh, therefore we'd like to do what we can. But we want to do do as little as possible. So our response is always... 
it, it's always a it's an escalation because we start by well we'll sanction them or we'll arm we'll arm the people who are fighting against them and let them do the fighting but then you then but then we're still committed and even though now they're not succeeding and therefore we wind up being we have to do more and more and more and you know look at ukraine today i mean we we didn't if you had said to any american certainly any any foreign policy expert on February 22nd, does the United States have a vital security interest in Ukraine? Everybody would have said, of course not. If, if Even if Ukraine were to fall to Russia, the United States' insecurity is not going to be put at risk. Uh, and yet, as soon as the, the Russians invaded Ukraine, uh, Americans rose up in, in rather strong fashion, a majority of Americans thought we need to be doing something to help Ukraine. And what we've been doing is gradually ratcheting up our involvement in the war in order to make sure that the Ukrainians don't lose to the Russians. I mean, it's a lot of this is happening right in front of us right now, this tendency to, uh, to think we don't care about something. And then, well, it turns out we do care. And then we start taking we try to do as little as possible in order to accomplish our objective, and it winds up not being enough. And I, I actually have a – I call this the America trap because I think if you look at the 20th century in particular, other great power autocracies have walked into this trap again and again and again. They believe that the United States is true of Germany in both world wars and Japan in World War II. They believe the United States is not interested in doing anything, isn't really capable of doing anything, and certainly isn't going to do anything in time. And so they make they take their moves and they make their steps, and then they get so far down the road that even when the United States does say we're really going to get involved, it's too late to convince them to turn back around. So as I'm reading your book, <clears throat> I'm learning about Japan invading Manchuria, and in, of course in China and Nanking and that whole story. And obviously invaded us. The Germans invaded Poland. And I kept thinking, look what the world's doing today. Uh, you know, how are we supposed to make sense out of the fact that we've asked Japan to increase their military output? We've asked the Germans to give tanks and other things, of course, to Ukraine. Uh, what's going on in the world and how can you make sense out of all this? Well, I mean, partly that's the miracle of American, I mean, that is the miracle of American foreign policy. And, you know, we make a lot of mistakes and I don't, you know, you can't read the history of American foreign policy and think that, you know, we're always the smartest or, or we do make mistakes. But if you look at the transformation of Germany and Japan from being the real threats to world peace and world order and now being the bulwarks of world peace and world order and democracy, uh, that's no small accomplishment. And it, and it makes all the difference because, I mean, you're right to say, look at the parallel. Uh, the, the names have changed. It's not Germany in Europe now. It's Russia. It's not Japan in Asia. It's China. But the, but the structure of the situation is similar. What's different, if you look back to the 1930s, is that in the 1930s, the United States had no allies, really. Um, certainly no formal alliances, no deployments overseas. Uh, today, as you see the rise of China and the, and the aggressiveness of Russia, but they're doing it in a world that is heavily dominated by the American-led liberal order. And they, are, they face immediate obstacles to their actions, which the Germans in 1930s and the Japanese in 1930s did not face. I want to ask you about some other things that people might not know about. Uh, there's something, and I've seen it over the years, a Kellogg-Briand pack. <laughs> right. uh, you write about it. What is it? 
you know, a lot of people have very idealistic notions about the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Well, what was it? It was a, it was an agreement. Uh, it was very simple. I think it's a, it's, it's a two-sentence statement about they're going to outlaw war. Everybody agrees. Everybody who signs it agrees that war is illegal. And there was some theory that if everybody agreed that war was illegal, then you would have less war. Um, I don't know why anybody thought that was true, but the irony is, is that. The original, this idea really came out of American peace activists, and they convinced the French to ask the Americans to sign a a, a kind of a non-aggression pact. The Americans were so the Americans were so hostile to the idea of signing any agreement with France or with any European power that they said, "Let's make it universal. Let's have everybody sign it." And at that point, the French lost interest because if everybody is saying that outlawing war, it doesn't it doesn't do anything for France. Um, it doesn't help them against Germany. So it was a very cynical activity, which people then took very seriously. And even today, there are prominent law professors at Yale writing glowingly about the Kellogg-Briand Pact. That that Kellogg-Briand Pact is 1928. Hitler takes power in 1933. The Japanese invade Manchuria in 1931. I mean, it's hard to look at it as a successful uh, accomplishment. Who was Kellogg, and, and did, did he matter? Frank Kellogg was a very mediocre Secretary of State uh, for, uh, uh, at that point, it was uh, Coolidge, and um, I would say uh, this was his only, the only thing that he is associated with that anybody can remember, really. He was not a very, there wasn't much foreign policy in those days, you know? America was pretty much staying out of things. We had a vice president back in those days that uh, I assume a lot of people have never heard of, Dawes. There was a Dawes plan. Let's go back to what we were talking about earlier about the invasion of the Ruhr Valley in Germany, who was Dawes? What did he do? What did it matter? Yeah, well, Dawes was a businessman, um, and those and in those years in the 1920s, because the United States government and public and Congress didn't want to be involved in Europe, but they did have economic interests in Europe. And after the Ruhr, they wanted to do something to sort of patch things up, uh, including getting Germany to start paying reparations again so that the British and the French would pay the debt to the United States. And so um, what what the government did at that time was look to businessmen and bankers private bankers acting in their private capacity to solve these problems. And that's what the Dawes plan was, with sort of sotto voce backing with the U.S. government. But it really was a banker's plan. And what was it? It was to get private American bankers, chiefly Americans, to loan $250 million to Germany so that Germany could then pay the French and the British so that the British and the French could then pay the Americans. And we created this sort of cyclical debt payment system, which only lasted a few years before it basically collapsed. And John Maynard Keynes at the time said, this isn't accomplishing anything. This is just moving paper around. But in the United States, it was a huge success. Everybody thought it was brilliant. And that's how Dawes got to be named vice president. It was such. It was regarded as being so successful. It really was not successful. By the way, how much debt during those years that you wrote about, the 1900 to 1941, how much of that debt has been paid off? 
by the French or by the Germans or by the Russians? Well, they declared a, ultimately when the Depression hit, um, the uh, the Europeans declared. Uh, well, first of all, Hoover declared a debt moratorium and then said, told them they didn't have to pay for a year. But they at the Lausanne conference said, "Well, we're not paying at all. Nobody's paying anybody anything. Forget about it." And that was pretty much that was pretty much it. The the British, I think it's possible, however, that the British paid off their debt at some point and uh, uh, you know that's a that's a i only looking at this period so i don't really remember i don't really know how much more they had to keep paying afterwards but i know that it was very upsetting to everybody that people were supposed to keep paying until 1988 which uh, was a very long way off given when where the debt started in world war one another gentleman that you write about and people talk about woodrow wilson all the time <clears throat> historians of course talk about henry cabot lodge who was he? How did he fit into this story? And how important was what he did? He was vitally important and a very interesting character because he and Theodore Roosevelt were the original sort of internationalists. They were the ones who thought America had to play a, an important role in the world. They were very obviously gung-ho about uh, the Spanish-American War, but they wanted the United States to take responsibility. Uh, for global affairs, commensurate with its growing power. But, and by the way, both Lodge and Roosevelt, before Wilson had even thought about a league, had themselves come up with the idea of a League of Nations. Roosevelt writes about it at great length in 1914, and Lodge is his buddy, and he, Lodge actually coined the term United Nations. Uh, so, however, that being said, uh, when the Senate, when the Senate goes Republican in 1918, Lodge becomes both majority, Senate Majority Leader and Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman, and his number one objective, as basically the Republican Party leader, is to make sure the Democrats don't win again in 1920, because uh, it had been a Republican-dominated White House since the late 19th century. The the election of Wilson was a complete fluke because Theodore Roosevelt decided to run as a third party candidate. And so the Republicans lost for the first time. And the Republicans were so furious about this, they were desperate to get it back. So Lodge basically takes it upon himself. He knows two things. One, that if Wilson passes the League of Nations and the Versailles Treaty in Congress, it's going to be such a huge victory that it's probably going to catapult the Democrats into yet another victory, whether it's Wilson again in 1920 or somebody else. Therefore, Lodge says, knows he must defeat the League of Nations and the Versailles Treaty. And he makes it his business to do that. And, and, and because he's in charge of the Senate, he stacks the committees. He holds endless amounts of hearings. They read the Versailles Treaty out loud for two weeks. He just he buys time to try to build up opposition. And he's a brilliant legislative uh, manipulator and he winds up being able to defeat the league uh, uh, which I think was probably the greatest error uh, of the 20th century of anybody and I think is 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 very very much responsible for World War II. Why was in what, <clears throat> what part of this was an error? Defeating it? Yes. Yeah. Why? Why was that an error? 
because I think, as I say, at a very at very little cost, and the league is not, you know, one of the things that Lodge and the league opponents did was was caricature the league, and with you know there was the huge debate about Article Ten, and whether Article Ten committed the United States to have to go to war anywhere in the world at any time if the if the league decided other powers decided that, and the Republicans made a very big deal about how that would bind Americans to go to war, which was nonsense. Uh, there was nothing in Article Ten that were, you you. Still Still had to have a declaration of war by Congress. The president still had to agree he wanted to go to war, but they were very successful in making that case. And um, they actually, you know, I think they played on something that was real, which is Americans, as you know, did not want, if you put it a certain way, to be responsible for having to send troops anywhere in the world at any particular time. And so it was easy to sort of turn the Americans against that. And, and Lodge did that very effectively. And it was a, it was, why was it a turning point? Because, you know, as a result of that, the entire attitude of the American political system shifted toward the isolationists in the Republican Party. And therefore, the United States just refused to take part at a time when the United States, as, as I say, had the greatest opportunity to establish a peace. Henry Cabot Lodge and Woodrow Wilson both had PhDs. <clears throat> they went to Eastern schools. Uh, Johns Hopkins for uh, Henry. No, it's Woodrow Wilson, I believe, got his PhD there. Uh, why did they hate each other? Well, a lot of people hated Woodrow Wilson. I mean, Woodrow Wilson was not the most... You know, I, maybe his good friends enjoyed being with him, but but he was a pretty cold guy and pretty arrogant, and he really didn't. He wasn't very generous to people he thought were fools, and he and he also rightly understood that Lodge was trying to destroy him. So in a way, I I don't think he was wrong in his in his view of Lodge. Lodge, of course, being a very successful Senate politician, had a had an easier way with people, but. If you want to ask me, the person who really hated Wilson was Theodore Roosevelt. I think Lodge hated him too, but it, in a way, it was it was them together. Why did Theodore Roosevelt hate Wilson? Some of it, of course, was he disagreed with Wilson ideologically, and Wilson was not, again, the most warm person in the world. But the Roosevelt really hated Wilson because he knew that he was responsible for putting Wilson in office. Roosevelt knew that he got Wilson elected. And so for him, it was very personal. And so this thing does become extremely personal with them. But but in service of political ends, you know, at the end of the day, if it had served Lodge's political purposes to pass the league, he would have passed the league. It's just that as it happened, it served his political purposes to defeat the league. And explain why Theodore Roosevelt got Woodrow Wilson elected. Well, again, in 1912, uh, Roosevelt, who had he'd made a big mistake when he first took over from McKinley, which is a per, the, the earlier part of our conversation, because he basically said, "I'm only gonna I'm gonna treat this term as as a term," even though he came in after a year's worth of McKinley's term, and so he finishes out that term, and then he runs for a second term, and then he basically has taken himself out because of the tradition of Americans not running, the president's not running for more than two. But he, but being an ex-president was no fun for him. <laughs> he really liked being president. He tried to distract himself by going off and killing something like 500 animals in Africa. But at the end of the day, he was still, he was young. He was a very young president. And so he was still very young. And he had a huge following in the country. People loved Theodore Roosevelt. And so he ran for president in, in 2012 against his own hand-picked 
president, Howard, William Howard Taft, who he had put in the White House, and um, he ran against him, and therefore they wound up splitting the Republican vote in half. Uh, and handing the Wilson won with I think something like forty plus maybe forty percent forty four percent of the vote thank you and so uh, he wouldn't have won if Roosevelt hadn't and Roosevelt had twenty seven percent of the vote right no and he beat he went, came out ahead of Taft, <laughs> Taft. Um, he was one of the most popular politicians in the country at the time so that's not surprising except you know uh, Republicans thought they should keep stick with the guy that they'd already elected one of the things that you point out is that it took two thirds of the vote of the Senate to pass this treaty. Uh, what's your thinking about that? Is that the right percentage? Could it stay that way? Well, the one thing that is clear is that the founders created a system that made it very hard to for to, to conduct foreign policy. I you know I, I don't think you know they thought they were doing their best actually because there was an improvement on the Articles of Confederation, but even so, they, the, the check that they gave to the Senate on treaties, and that's why when people say why did the Senate defeat the the, the Treaty of the League, I mean in a way. It was because the Senate defeated any any time the opposition party was in charge of the Senate. It was almost impossible to pass any treaty. Uh, you know, Taft couldn't get various arbitration treaties with Britain passed because the Senate that was the Senate's great power was to defeat a treaty. So if you had the opposition party in charge. Uh, and then, and in addition, then insisted that there be two thirds vote for approval. It was very hard to do. Go back to nineteen thirty eight. Crystal knot. Why is that important? Yeah, one of the things that I discovered uh, uh, doing the research, because you know, one of the questions that is, that arises is when did American public opinion begin to change about Europe and whether we should be doing anything about what's happening in Europe? Because in thirty five and third nineteen thirty five and thirty six, the country is very determined not to get involved in Europe. They pass the neutrality acts, which prevent the United States even from from uh, from recognizing the existence of an aggressor by embargoing that, by putting sanctions on an aggressor. And so they wanted the United States to be completely neutral, uh, not to trade with either side and not to embargo either side, if you, you know, to be completely out of it, which is because everybody believed that that's how the United States got pulled into World War One because of its trading relationship uh, with Britain. So they had passed the Neutrality Act. And... Um, and Roosevelt himself, in his first term as president, ran as an isolationist. I mean, in 1936, it's not just that he says, I hate war. It's just he's he's running as an isolationist because that's what the American people are. So what is going to change their minds? Uh, Roosevelt begins to change his mind. I think he always was concerned, and he grew ever more concerned, but he was unable to move the public. Kristallnacht. So Kristallnacht, if, 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 if the listeners, um, I'm sure, have some memory of this, it, it, was, it, was a, it was probably the worst pogrom in modern Europe against the Jews uh, in Germany. Um, the, the Nazi party, mostly organized, but partly just letting people run rampant, uh, uh, destroyed thousands of Jewish stores, uh, ransacked thousands of Jewish homes. Uh, Jews were killed on the streets. Uh, so many Jews committed suicide because they lost everything in that one. And so it was a really horrific uh, event. I'm sorry. Um, and so, uh, and the interesting thing is that in the United States, Kristallnacht had a huge effect on American public opinion. Now, it's interesting because after Kristallnacht in 1938 in Germany, 
anti-Semitism and organized anti-Semitic groups in the United States grow enormously. Anti-Semitism goes up in the United States as a result of that. Uh, however, I would say the bulk of American opinion, and certainly people who think of themselves as Democrats and liberals in particular at that time, Roosevelt followers, were horrified at what had happened. And it put, uh, it put things in a different, it changed the optic of Germany, uh, of Nazi Germany. People knew that Hitler was a problem on this issue, but people really had sort of very mixed feelings. Uh, Hitler had not emerged as the kind of evil figure in the same way that he later would. Kristallnacht was a turning point, more than Munich, which had happened a couple, a few months earlier. Americans had very ambivalent attitude towards Munich because it had kept the peace. What do you mean by Munich? Munich, I'm sorry, the agreement that, um, that Hitler managed to get out of the British and French essentially to allow Germany to take over Czechoslovakia without a fight. Um, you know, Hitler was threatening to take over parts of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland, which was a heavily German uh, uh, section of Czechoslovakia, uh, and um, he was threatening war, and ultimately Chamberlain, the famous Neville Chamberlain meeting at Munich, where Chamberlain essentially said, you can take Czechoslovakia without a fight, in the hopes that this was the, this was the, the sort of, the, 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 the ultimate point of appeasement, um, you know, in the hope that if, if, if Hitler got what he wanted in Czechoslovakia, then he would calm down and, and not go any further, which, of course, was immediately disproven. And so in the United States, Fro Franklin Roosevelt uh, publicly praised Munich, even though privately he, he treated it as a sellout of the Czechs and talked about Judas Iscariot and blood on hands and things like that. But, um, but, but Kristallnacht was not uh, really had a huge effect on whether on Americans feeling like we're not dealing with a civilized power here. We're dealing with a very strong power that uh, who are essentially barbarians. And that was frightening. On the subject of the Jews, I want to go back to 1920. Henry Ford. Uh, he did a series of newspaper articles in a newspaper he owned in Dearborn, Michigan, called The International Jew, The World's Foremost Problem. 91 different Editions. What in the world was Henry Ford up to and why? Well, I mean, you know, anti-Semitism is a is a it's as old as almost Judaism and Christianity, but it, it certainly was always a vibrant in in the United States. What do you think? You know, I know this is not easy yeah. to, to, to answer, but what do you think causes this? Um, I mean, what what is it that, and it happens here and still in this country yeah. out of nowhere out of yeah. no for no particular reason you don't see anybody that's Jewish that's particularly uh, making an impact yeah no I I don't um, you know the origins of anti-Semitism and the human soul I'm not I'm, you know I I can come up with the same answers that anybody comes up with I mean in in Christian teaching the Jews you know betrayed Christ and so they you know I remember as a youth uh, being told by other kids that I was you know a Christ killer. I mean, so that is that still exists. Do you think? You know, I don't know if it exists. People are more reticent in general. People are more reticent about saying things in public. But I don't know what they say in private. <laughs> you know, well, I, what about Henry Ford? Why, well, Henry Ford. Why so, would he risk this? And, well, Henry Ford was had also become was was also uh, he was kind of a pacifist and. He may have also been an anti-Semite, but th there's an interesting linkage here because after World War One, people who were disillusioned with 
why did the United States go to war and it was a big disaster and we should never have done it. They, as Americans are wont to do, they they developed a conspiracy theory to explain how the United States had gone into this war when it shouldn't have. And the, the conspiracy theory revolved around bankers and munitions makers. So basically the theory was the arms industry, but also the banking industry because of the war debts got the United States into the war. And when you say banking industry to a lot of Americans, especially at that time, what they hear are, is Jews. And the idea that there's an international Jewish financial uh, conspiracy to control the world is very old. And one of the things that Henry Ford uh, reprinted in his Dearborn publication were the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a, a forgery designed to show that the Jews were actually trying to take over the world, etc. So um, I don't know how to explain why anti-Semitism is so is so virulent, but it is. And, uh, and it certainly was then. And, and you know, Anti-Semitism plays a big part in responses in the 1930s to whether we should be doing something about Germany or not. And there are a lot of people uh, who are accusing Roosevelt of basically going to the war to save Jews. To, to, basically, so this is, they started treating, they started calling this a Jewish war for Jews, World War II I'm talking about. And they, they would refer to Roosevelt as Rosenfeld with the idea that he himself was either a Jew or taken over by Jews. It was a big part of the America First movement. America First movement was anti-Semitism. Uh, Charles Lindbergh gave a famous speech in 1941 in which he said, basically, the Jews are trying to take us to war. Have you started writing volume three yet? I have not. I've been, I'm reading for it. I'm, I'm still looking for a way to write this book, these books in less than 15 years. So I'm trying to see if I could structure my way into doing it faster. What's a day like when you're in this kind of a situation? Um, a day is most, in this period, a day is about reading and taking notes. Um, it's about reading and then reading secondary literature, meaning reading authors who've written about the period, and then looking at the authors that they cite and looking at the original material that they cite and, when necessary, going to that original material. So it's, it's, I'm in the process now of immersing myself in... Well, really, it's it's the World War II period because this book, the next book, will begin in world during World War II. How much of your day do you do this? Um, I when I'm good, uh, when I'm a good boy, I get <laughs> up at eight and do it until lunch, and then maybe get a couple more hours in in the afternoon. If I'm writing, I can write for a few hours, but I can't write for more than three or four hours a day. When do you think you'll begin writing? Um, my wife has told me I'm beginning writing in about a year. Uh, and I hope that that's right. I have other things I'm writing in the in the interim, so I've got a few things to get out of the way. Father Coughlin. Yeah. In the mix of all this, in the 30s, getting 30 million people to listen to him on a Sunday afternoon? Yeah. It's Who almost like he? Brian Lamb. <laughs> yeah, close. <laughs> <laughs> Who was he? Father Coughlin, which was, he was known as the radio priest. He was um, an Irish Catholic radio priest. Uh, personality who became increasingly I would say he became a leading anti-Semitic voice in America because he also blamed World War One on the Jews and then and took this view that you know uh, 
after Kristallnacht, for instance, he, he said everybody's getting so upset about how many billions of dollars or millions of dollars the Jews were had stolen from them. But who talks about how many millions of billions of dollars were stolen by Catholic and Christians uh, under communism? And so he was a perfect example. In Americans were divided in this period between those who feared communism the most and those who feared fascism the most. People, conservatives tended to fear communism and be a little soft on fascism. Liberals tended to fear fascism and be a little soft on communism. How do you define fascism? Uh, that's a good question. It's a it's a it's a controversial question. But fascism is basically uh, sort of the, the belief that one person. Uh, holds all the wisdom and speaks for the people in general. That the voice of the people is 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 expressed, and the interests of the people are are protected by il duce, der Führer, the leader. Um, and usually, there's a sort of uh, party aspect to it. Uh, you know, in those days, you people wore uniforms to indicate their membership. Um, but you can have fascism without that. And I think sometimes people. Like, I think we are dealing with a kind of fascism today in America. It just doesn't, you know, there's people aren't saluting with and wearing jackboots. But um, but I, we do have a kind of fewer pr- person that, that a certain number of Americans, I'm talking about Donald Trump, that certain Americans are willing to follow regardless of, you know, who believe that he's right, no matter what he says. How do you define communism? Well, communism is an offshoot of the enlightenment of liberal enlightenment. One thing about fascism is that it's anti-liberal. It's fundamentally opposed to individual rights, whereas communism professes to be part of, in a way, the enlightenment tradition, and but believes that only the only way to uh, secure people's rights is by securing everyone an equal share in the means of production and and then in the economy and have common ownership. And I think you know whatever the Whatever the ideals may be in practice, I think we've seen that that really just becomes another tyranny because you you really you wind up having a, a party that is in control of everything in the in presumably in the service of equalizing. Uh, what, in your opinion, would have been different back in the for, first forty years of the twentieth century if there had been an internet? <laughs> You know, I I don't. That's a good question, and I remember before there was you would ask that question years ago. We used to talk about something called the CNN effect, which is basically what was the world like before you could see everything live on TV. And I think it, in that sense, I think we always we we tend to overstate how much of a difference that made. You know, people back in the 1890s, when they read about the uh, Armenian uh, genocide, for instance, the daily newspapers were full of it. Uh, In those days, you had a morning paper and an evening paper. They would have been full of it. People were responding in real time to those events, too. And there was a CNN effect before there was a CNN the internet is interesting because you know because of its lack of a gate of gatekeepers so that everyone is able to express their opinion so now we get to find out what everybody thinks about everything and i think we're all horrified <laughs> once we now that we know what everybody thinks we almost wish we didn't know right so <laughs> I want to go over a number of names and get your take on them because you do you do have an aside in there about Harding Coolidge and Hoover those three men, presidents of the United States, what do you think of them? 
Well, I think that you have to, for me, you have to separate, I have to separate whatever they did, were doing domestically on the domestic, on domestic issues uh, and what they were doing in foreign policy. Now, on domestic issues, I know there are people who are very fond of the economic policies at the time, and the country was certainly booming, whether it was a result of their policies or just because the country was booming, I don't know. Uh, on on social issues, they were pretty horrible. You know, this was the period in which uh, the most uh, restrictive immigration legislation in history is passed. 1924 Immigration Act uh, basically excludes everyone who's not from Northern Europe. Uh, so there's that. There's also the rise of the Klan in this period. The, the Ku Klux Klan enjoys a second life, which is much greater than its first life in this period. Um, and also, you have a protectionist economic policy. So, I mean, from those point of view, I think it was all kind of a disaster. But in foreign policy, it's really a disaster because they were so wedded to the idea that the United States should not get involved in anything anywhere in the world that they basically sat by and allowed the world to collapse. And as I mentioned, also took part in helping the world collapse by their economic policies. Some other names. You've mentioned them. Uh, Mussolini, Lenin, Stalin and Hitler. Which of those four do you think had the biggest, um, <laughs> I don't know what you yeah, call it. Yeah, no, really. <laughs> Disaster? <clears throat> <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, obviously, I think you'd have to say Hitler, you know, brought brought the world to, to the point of uh, complete destruction and not to mention killing six million Jews and millions of other uh, victims of his, of his Holocaust. So uh, I, I suppose Hitler is special in that regard. But what what they all have in common, uh, and and I think we need to think about the fact that their kind has not disappeared. What they all had in common was that they opposed they opposed liberal democracy as as a, as an ideological matter, not just because it didn't help them rule. I think, and and sometimes I think we treat uh, you know Hitler and Stalin and Mussolini as sort of bizarre creatures that we could never imagine having to deal with again. Except that now we are kind of dealing with them again. I mean, I don't, I don't really see, you know, I'm going to say this. It sounds uh, may sound absurd, but you know, other than the Holocaust, I don't really see what the difference between Putin and Hitler is. Um, you know, Putin doesn't have a plan to exterminate a particular people, except now his plan is to exterminate Ukrainians. Um, but in terms of his will, I don't, I don't think there's much that Putin is not willing to do uh, to further his ends. And what he's doing in Ukraine right now is about as awful as anything anybody's ever done. And I, and I think Xi Jinping is, you know, is a new Mao um, at least. Uh, and and I think, you know, so uh, it's good. It's good. Uh, it's it's useful for us to realize that uh, the last bad people in the world are not behind us. Well, it's time in this uh, discussion to <clears throat> do what we always do. I haven't seen you for years, but to uh, get out the Kagan family <laughs> <Uh-oh>. list. <laughs> what's it? I mean, what's it like for you as a historian being married to the fourth ranking person in the State Department, Victoria Newland? Sorry, she's the third ranking person in the State Department. Oh my goodness! What a, <laughs> what a mistake! Oh my, it's tell over. her to change it's, her Wikipedia. It's over site. between us. Is that what it says? <laughs> well, the Wikipedia. She's not in control of her Wikipedia page. I'm afraid. Um, I have to say, uh, getting to watch her in action has been one of the most amazing 
things in my life, honestly. I, I, I'm sorry, she's my wife, so I'm not going to, you know, people will have to take this whence it comes. But I think that she's she's an extraordinary diplomat and um, and the number of things, that, the number of balls she keeps in the air every day. I don't know how these people, I don't know how these people do it. So, and of course, you know, I've always benefited enormously from being uh, her husband in terms of my own work. Um, the first book I wrote that got a fair amount of attention was a book called Paradise and Power. And I published it in 2003. That book was only a consequence of the fact that my wife was, uh, Tori was ambassador to NATO and I was just there as a trailing spouse, as they say. But I learned a, a lot in that. I I traveled with her when she was posted to Moscow in 1991. We we witnessed the, the uh, coup and the overthrow of the communist regime there and the breakup of the Soviet Union. So I, I've uh, it's been terrific for me. You lost your dad in 2021. Yeah. Donald eight. Kagan, <clears throat> professor at Yale. Yeah, he was 89. I have to say, I mean, I'm, I miss him terribly, but he, he lived such a full and happy life. Uh, I, he got everything he wanted out of life and more than he even knew that he could get. So he put in a great 89 years and um, touched a lot of people because of his teaching over the many decades. And uh, I, I miss him, but he really, really did have a wonderful life. What's the story about the the uh, contributor to his seat there where he got, you know... He, oh, the Bass Grant. Yeah, what what happened around that? <laughs> oh, well, that was a... That was a I, I almost don't remember when that happened. Was it the 90s? I think it might have been the 90s. There was a, there was a, a Yale alum, alumnus named uh, Bass who wanted to donate, uh, I think it was something like $20 million or more maybe even, to set up a program to teach Western civilization at Yale. My father had started, had redone and, and redesigned a program called Directed Studies, which is a intense focus on on Western civilization, and they were going to now turn this into a larger program. And Yale was initially thrilled and accepted the money, but then there were a lot of complaints from sort of the left side of the political spectrum at Yale and people who were opposed to West, the teaching of Western civilization. And Yale actually gave back the money, which is something that I thought was unusual for a university to give back millions of dollars uh, because they don't want to have a course on Western civilization. It was a real... I think Yale never recovered from that decision to some extent. You went to Yale. Yeah. But the other side of that story was Beverly Gage, who stepped out of uh, a teaching situation at Yale because the pressure came from the other side. Uh, I don't, what is what's the, what's the story on Beverly Gage? Oh, oh was, because she was what? No, what was the issue? Well, she would not. I mean, I don't want to put. We, I had her on the program yeah. here a few weeks ago, but she didn't want to be told by outsiders how to teach her class. Oh, sure, right by the she, yeah. by the people who were the funders, funders of yeah. that program, right? No, I under, I understand that that I understand her position on that. Yeah, yeah. Fred Kagan, my younger, smarter brother. At the American Enterprise Institute. Correct. Yeah, and right now, boy, he um, he runs something with his wife Kim. Uh, they run something called the Critical Threats Project, and also something called the Institute for the Study of War. And they have basically t uh, they basically have taken over, as far as I could tell, uh, 
the analysis of the Ukraine war that the media uses. They produce the maps of where what's going on in the battlefield. They produce reports on what's happening on the battlefield with based on open source uh, intelligence, if you will. Um, it's really quite an extraordinary thing. And and as and as they say, if you look, if you read stories in the Time, New York Times, and the Washington Post, and elsewhere, uh, many of them are based on the work that they do. I'm not sure you're the one to ask about this, but if you look up the background on the Institute of the Study of War, it's funded by a lot of companies that make military hardware. Yeah. Does this, I mean, you hear all, there's money we're talking about through this whole process yeah. of, is is it a problem? And in your case, you've been supported by a number of people like Phil Knight. Why Phil Knight? Well, in my case, I'm 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 supported by the people who support Brookings, and Phil Knight is one of the very and generous Smith donors. Richardson and I had my, I I once had a right. This book was partly funded by a grant from Smith Richardson, which comes from the I guess the Vix Vapor Rub fortune. Um, yeah, no, I mean, if you're if you're someone like myself, you're not gonna you can't really make money writing books. Unfortunately, as much as I would like to be able to do that i don't you can't make a living that way anyway and my wife works in the government so somebody has to make some money around here so but thankfully there are generous people who support think tanks like brookings uh who are willing to support my scholarship and uh, and that of others and I'm, I'm very grateful for that um you know as far as uh I'll, you know you should talk to fred and kim about their own uh, donors I, how much do the all of you kagans ever disagree <laughs> we disagree plenty. <laughs> I remember um, we disagree plenty, but uh, I think we agree. I think we agree on some f- on sort of like fundamental realities about the way the world works. That that's our that's our biggest area of, of agreement. And apparently, we on that we seem to disagree with much of the rest of the population. <laughs> Explain that though. Give me. Well, I I just feel like uh, I think we're very conscious of the role that power plays in international relations and. Even though we also, and I think we also believe that ideology plays a big role, and and for us, for me certainly speaking for myself, it's the interaction of power and ideology, power and belief, that is what makes the world go around, and that's that's not, I would say that's not the standard take. I think a lot of people look at. At the prog, you know, you have people like Steven Pinker writing about the progress of humanity, or Frank Fukuyama. In the end of history, whereas I think we tend to be more, let's say, Hobbesian in our view that the world is always going to be about the clash of power and the clash of beliefs. A trilogy, one book to go. The name of this book is The Ghost at the Feast. And you know I can't go past that without asking you what that means. Yeah, no, the title comes from, uh, there was a great British diplomat named Harold Nicholson, uh, who, uh, among other things, was present in 1919 at the Paris Peace Talks as part of the British delegation. And he uh, wrote in his uh, diary uh, something like the following, which is that the fear that the American people would not live up to whatever Woodrow Wilson committed to at Paris was the ghost at all our feasts. Um, And since that is in fact what happened, I I decided to name the book about America being the ghost at the feast. Last question, you have a title for your next book? I don't, I, I, I have to see what it looks like first. The Ghost at the Feast, America and the Collapse of World Order, 1900 to 1941. Thank you, Robert Kagan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. 
please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.